Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for the last live Solidarity Breakfast for the year. We're going to go into the summer season over the next four weeks after this week. Um, I've been putting together various things from the past that I thought were worth re-listening to and it turns out to be a bit of a theme uh, series because uh, I was looking at uh, some areas that uh, we covered over the the year and uh, they all nicely fall into various parts of um, discussion like racism for example and uh, inequality and whole range of things of that nature. But anyway, uh, it's a bit of fun uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Uh, today we're going to finish up with uh, some, we're going to hear from uh, uh, Bruce Pascoe. Bruce Pascoe, uh, R- Wong Aboriginal Cooperative person who you will know is the author of several books and the one that caused waves recently is Dark Emu. He was uh, doing a keynote speech at a fantastic conference that was held at uh, by the Australian Centre at uh, Melbourne Uni. It was called Colonialism and Its Narratives, Rethinking the Colonial Archive in Australia. And um, he gave a bit of a speech. There's going to be bits from that speech because it was a relatively long speech. But um, some of the other things that I collected from that particular uh, conference is going to be uh, uh, um, played over the summer season. So some of it was really, really fascinating. And uh, hopefully you'll hear the full speech uh, that uh, Bruce gave because it's... uh, a thoroughly interesting speech. This is just two gems from that particular speech. We're going to go on to talk to... I I got the chance to catch up with uh, Fiona Patton, who got a return ticket to the Upper House. Uh, The Reason Party has been returned. Formerly the Sex Party has returned to the Upper House. Uh, And uh, of Victoria, after the election, you'll realise that the Labor Party got... Eight, 18 seats, the Libs and the Nationals have got a reduced count, but there's 40 seats in the entire um, upper house and uh, the Labor Party needs 21 in order to be able to uh, pass legislation at that level. So all the minor parties are all going to be uh, more important. Uh, Darren Hinch's party got a couple 
of seats. Um, Reason Party did. The Greens got one. Uh, the Shooters and Hunters, or whatever they call themselves, Shooters and Fishers, um, they got one. I can't remember the others. Oh, the Animal uh, Rights uh, Party got one as well, which was uh, fascinating. And it was pointed out on the uh, Concrete Gang that uh, the um, <clears throat> fellow who's uh, got into Parliament uh, for the Animal Rights uh, Party uh, is a CFMEU member. How about that? So that goes against stereotype, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, before we move ahead, uh, there's a couple of things uh, that you might want to put on your calendar. Archer Magazine, Australia's most inclusive publication about sex and gender, will launch their 11th issue at Arts Project Australia in Northcote this coming Friday, the 14th of December. Join us from 7.30pm for readings, performance, raffles, disco tunes and one of the most feisty and friendly dance floors in town. Tickets start at $5 and no one's turned away for lack of funds. For more information and to book tickets, head to facebook.com forward slash Archer Magazine. A 3CR supporter. The City of Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Shane Jacobson for an evening featuring performances by Casey Donovan and many more. Bring along a picnic and celebrate under the stars with a riverside pyrotechnic display to conclude the night. Carols at Como Park, Sunday, December 16, from 7.30pm. See the City of Stonington website for more details. A 3CR supporter. Well, it will be uh, interesting to see if the rain holds off on Sunday. We had a deluge yesterday. It was the most incredible you will, it's one of those events that uh, people say, I remember when, because the rain was incredible. The uh, lightning was incredible, the thunder was incredible, and it just made you wonder what it must be. Um, this is the uh, hem of a uh, cyclone that's happening further up the coast, so imagine what's going on up there. And there's a couple of other things before we move on to Bruce uh, Pascoe's piece. Uh, there's a starting today down at uh, Geelong Trades Hall. There's uh, activist summer school and conference uh, by the Socialist Alliance. They've got special guests, um, Sushita D, Indian socialist feminist and student leader, and uh, it's uh, going on from January the fifteenth to the twentieth. So. Uh, uh, it uh, might be something you might like uh, to look into. You can register at the trybookings.com forward slash YQDS, YQDS. So it's a Socialist Alliance event, uh, activist summer school and conference. If you're not going down the coast to swim, you might like to go down the coast to be enlightened. That's January the 15th to the Second and today is the last day of the radical book sale at the Resistance Bookshop, uh, which is at uh, Level Five Four Hundred Seven Swanston Street City. That's across the road from RMIT. Twenty five percent off all stock today is the last day. It runs from ten a.m. to five p.m. So uh, get there or be square. Anyway, moving right along. As I said, I went down to Melbourne Uni 
listened to uh, a day of uh, interesting talks, very interesting talks indeed, as part of a conference put on by the Australian Centre there, uh, Colonialism and Its Narratives, Rethinking the Colonial Archive in Australia. And uh, uh, lucky enough to catch Bruce Pascoe, who is the author of Dark Emu. If you haven't uh, got the book, you should be getting it out of the library. And if it's not in your library, then you should be telling them to buy it. Australia has been in a, a very peculiar position for the last 230 years. Um, the whole world, the whole colonial world, and that's what we're talking about at this conference, has been in that position. I've just finished reading uh, three books about First Nation American people and how, what they uh, encountered from the British, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Belgians, um, whoever else had a boat. Um, and um, I read about South America, you know, mostly Spanish, Portuguese there. Um, and it, it's, they're so familiar. Those stories are so familiar. The names of the towns are different, the rivers are different, um, but the story is the same. Um, I was in the Smithsonian Institute a few years back and there's a wall there which would be twice as long as the back wall here and twice as high and it is covered in paper. Um, you know, many of you may have already seen this wall but it had a devastating effect on me because it was full of treaty, treaty between First Nation American Indians and the Americans, beginning with the British and ending with the American um, independent nation. And the story is told on those walls that many uh, First Nation American people, on their knees after having been defeated in war, form treaties. Some of them walk for two months to get to the assigned meeting place with the British government or the American government. And they make this treaty, not because they want to, but because they have to, because this is the last resort. This is mission time. Um, this is our mission time um, that they were having. We, there's no choice. You know, you don't go to the mission for white flour and tea and sugar. You don't go for the prayers and the songs. You go there because there's no choice. And I, I read with despair about those men and women who walked that distance and then stayed there over a complete winter while this treaty is hammered out. And hammered out in the most rigorous terms. And those treaties are all along that wall and not one of them was ratified by Congress. Not one. So this is, this is an even bigger fraud than selling water in a plastic bottle in a city, which at the time that happened was said to have the best water in the world. So the advertising people who created that were geniuses. The advertising people who created this were geniuses because this painting 
Um, they used to be common. I'm sure many of you have seen one. Um, perhaps the younger members of the audience have not. Um, go to an op shop, you might see one. Um, but I, I just accepted it like I had accepted the mole on my auntie's cheek. You know, it was just what I knew. Um, so I didn't really pay much attention to it until um, I read only a couple of years ago the, the legend around the outside. This form of art um, was made by an Englishman and there are about 30, 40 uh, different versions of this painting. And it's about this little child just in case you can't identify the child, I'm just uh, wanting to see if my clicker works. There's the child, there's a lovely lion, there's a little lamb. And this child is going to lead all these wild animals, these savage animals, that's the word is used, these savage animals, out of the wilderness. But it's an unusual painting because here's a bridge, so it's post-colonial. Down in here, there are a group of First Nation American Indians all feathered up, bows and arrows. You know, it's for an English audience, so they've got our feathers, they've got our bows and arrows. Um, and there's a man standing like this in the Christian gesture of forgiveness and love. And it's William Penn. Uh, of Pennsylvania and um, he's treating with those defeated armies and the, the treaty goes like this that if William Penn were to walk between sunrise and sundown in a straight line that should form one side of a square of land that he could have so what William Penn does, in the spirit of the broken treaties, William Penn and his family train athletes to run in relay between sunrise and sundown. And so they tenfold the amount of land they're supposed to have. Now, this is, um, this is a Christian principle of fairness. And um, you can imagine the devastating effect it had on the people. Not so much to lose the land, but to realise what they're up against. To realise that they could never trust again. And I was talking about this um, in Sydney maybe two or three years ago. And in a similar situation, I could see in the far corner of the room this map. And I could see that the legend ran around the edge of the frame in exactly the same form... Um, as um, those paintings that I'd seen before. I'm trying to think of the artist's name now. Um, but he was a, a propagandist uh, for Britain and um, Christianity its very self. And um, I saw this, and so after, after the talk and after I'd had the cup of tea and the stale scone, I went up the back and I took this photograph, and you can see that... The flash is dead in the middle, which is not bad, you know, <laughs> symmetrical, at least. Um, and uh, it says, Breathes there a man with soul so dead 
who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land. Now this is the colonist talking about itself. This is talking about passion for land. Breathes there a man with soul so dead who didn't love his land. And yet those same people were capable of taking the land from others. And in a discussion of colonialism, we have to think of the psyche that goes behind this sentiment, both the sentiment in the, um, the previous slide and, and this one. And because that sentiment is the thing that drove the colony. And it was driven, uh, Larissa Berent has written a number of essays on um, the, um, on the doctrine of discovery, which was the discovery of the um, Pope, um, who after Columbus discovered the Americas, or came across them, um, uh, decided that somehow or other the church, the Roman Catholic Church at least, had to rationalise what was going on in the world. And so the doctrine of discovery said that if Christians were to find a land where the people on that land didn't know the name of Jesus Christ and were resistant to that knowledge that they could be killed and the land taken. So it's a fairly subtle intellectual concept. <laughs> if you don't know the name of Jesus Christ, who was the father of God, who no one's ever seen, um, says that you can kill people than you can. Hey, this is Pressure MC from the Hilltop Hoods. Hey, what's up? This is Safa from the Hilltop Hoods. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. Support community radio and subscribe now. Yes, you are. You're on 3CR and it's Solidarity Breakfast and we've just uh, heard uh, a little bit of uh, Bruce Pascoe's speech at the uh, conference about uh, reframing colonialism and it's pretty sobering stuff. So we'll move on to the next part of what he had to say. In This this is just excerpts from his speech. Greg was talking about Manila Jana Day and um, Vicky and I were there a couple of weekends ago the great Patsy Cameron and her Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal friends in the little town of Tomahawk, (coughs) great name for a Tasmanian town. Um, They were celebrating the life of this man. And this man is famous for trying desperately to save his own people. But he's also famous in my mind because when... um, George Augustus Robinson gathered the remnants of the clans in Tasmania and took them to the offshore islands with the promise that um, when things had settled down on the mainland Tasmania, that they could return in peace 
to their homeland. Um, and of course, George Augustus Robinson got another job offer after having failed to keep the people alive on Flinders Island and went to Victoria um, on promotion. It's like the policeman from Palm Island who, having killed a man, got promoted twice. And we still argue the toss about whether a man singing Who Let the Dogs Out was in contempt of the whole national psyche or whether he just had a bad choice of music. Manila Jenner, when the bow of the boat that he was being transported on with George Augustus Robinson, when the, that bow ground into the sand of the island, he took a knife cut off all his dreadlocks and threw them into the sea. A lyrical, powerful statement of despair. I'm sure you know this history. You know, I'm speaking to people who know more of this history than me. Um, I was working with Rachel Perkins, uh, who recently won an award for her um, latest film, we're working on a new series and, um, you know, I was there as the expert on history and um, every 30 minutes Rachel had to correct me um, on a point of fact and was gracious enough to let me redo the take and become correct. Um, so I know that, you know, there are those in the room who know this history and have written about this history um, better than me but I'm just telling you my story. Jonathan Jones, young Aboriginal artist, activist, intellectual, philosopher, idiot, um, skinny idiot, um, lovely man. Um, after he read Dark Emu, thought that there were some gaps that needed examination and he you know he read the theory that Aboriginal people were turning the soil, weeding the soil and he thought well I'm going to examine this for myself. So he went to the Australian Museum and asked to be led into the, the bowels of that museum to look at artefacts um, and was refused. He asked again and was refused, he asked again and was refused, he asked again and reluctantly uh, on the fourth attempt they allowed him in, down into the rooms and there were several rooms this size or larger and there were cases of artefacts virtually to the ceiling, not quite to the ceiling, in every one of those rooms and they were full of stones like this grinding dishes, mortars Pestles, um, some spear points, some blades, but mostly stones like this. They'd never been exhibited. Most of them had no legend saying what they were. And this one was called Bogan River Pick. It was collected on the Bogan River on the New South Wales-Queensland border. And the rest of them had no labelling, but the word pick... Um, like a lot of the other words that um, the explorers um, 
used so frequently in their texts. Words like tilling, words like stook, words like harvest, <coughs> words like caching. The word pick should have alerted our historians to something. A lot of people in our position read those words and didn't think enough of the words or the history behind the words to include it in the Australian curriculum. The fact that this stone exists and has a thousand cousins at one museum in Australia, the Australian Museum, never been exhibited, <coughs> unknown to Australia, until Jonathan Jones found it and examined the leading edge of that pit and found that it had never been used on stone, never been used on wood, only ever been used in soil. There should have been an orange flashing light at the entrance to the museum saying, alarm, 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 there's something going on in here. I'm so grateful to Jonathan for that photograph because I like mine, it is in focus. <laughs> and you can see that that has been manufactured to accept a binding, probably of kangaroo sinew, um, anything that would shrink over time. And the hafting is at right angles to the stone. So this stone is this large, it's heavy, um, can't be used above the waist for any length of time. The handle is at right angles. How do you use it? There's only one way to use that stone, and that's like that. It's probably a weeding tool. You know, um, Lieutenant Gray in Western Australia, being the first Englishman into that country, said that he came across countless fields that had been so deeply tilled, he wrote the word down, um, so deeply tilted he couldn't walk across them. And two years ago, in Albany, when I was talking in complete ignorance about this process to people I should have had enough sense not to expose my ignorance, um, I was talking about that process. An old woman waited until the end of the day and said, come here, I'll show you. And so... She worked a face of soil and just chipping down and down. She didn't do the, the whole job, but when she got a profile about that high, she said, because that is where the yam is. This is a desert plant. This is a tropical plant from, you know, the early historians. Rupert Gerritsen's book, The Origins of Agriculture in Australia, really should be standard reading for many of our people. Unfortunately, Rupert's dead and... Um, can't lay claim to the importance of his own work, um, ended up not working at a university at all, Rupert, because his words and theories were so dangerous, um, dangerously divergent from the rest of the Australian canon that <coughs> Rupert couldn't get a job in, um, in Australian academia and was working as an independent student at ANU Library um, when I met him he, and he was dead in three months after that. I've never, never found out how Rupert died. Or, um, but anyway, 
he recorded all these incidents. And Australia was so deeply fond of Rupert's dedication to his country that that book had to be published in London in a, a, a publishing form which you could not economise any further on. It is the cheapest kind of publication. It's published in a run of 150 copies in London. And this is such a seminal work in Australia, um, largely unknown. And Rupert talks about the, these words like till, you know, and he wondered why didn't this ring a bell in Australian consciousness? Um, and we have to ask ourselves, why didn't it ring a bell? Why didn't the flashing orange light go on at the front of our institutions to say, this is important? I see birds from above Over walls I can't get past These feelings of desperation but I know that they won't last Time is all I have My past I leave behind Thinking out tomorrow That's all that's on my mind Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about squatting movements from around the world today. And On The Fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Yeah, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we were just listening to a speech, part of a speech that... Uh, Bruce Pascoe gave at uh, a conference at uh, Melbourne Uni all about uh, uh, re-jigging colonialism and its narratives, rethinking the colonial archive in Australia. And uh, we're going to move on to something a bit more modern. I had a chance to talk to, uh, well, (laughs) not not that uh, uh, the history that uh, uh, Bruce Pascoe was talking about 
is actually history. It's uh, living right at this moment. But anyway, we're moving on to talk to uh, Fiona Patton, who uh, regained her seat in the uh, uh, upper house in the last Victorian election, which was only sort of like, uh, oh, is it only one week ago? It could be two weeks. I can't remember. Time passes when you're having so much fun and you've had a a rain deluge and uh, you're moving on to Christmas. Anyway, uh, it was good to have a talk to Fiona Patton, who is part of the Reason Party, to, to find out more about the excitement of getting her seat back and what it means. It must be a fabulous uh, relief for you to have uh, regained your seat in the upper house in the Victorian Parliament. Yeah, I must say it's um, it's really exciting, and I'm very pleased to um, to have another four years. It was that it was quite a roller coaster of a, of an election period, that's for sure. Now uh, there was a big change from uh, the Sex Party title to the Reason Party. Can you give us listeners an understanding of where your uh, party was going when it decided to do that? Look, I think you know. The, well, I I mean, I founded the Sex Party, so obviously I I loved. You know, I was very proud of of the work that we had done and the fact that we had got up. But we were finding that, you know, the name was possibly hot, was starting to hold us back. Our vote wasn't increasing despite um, the work that we were doing in the parliament and the profile that we were we were starting to to have. So we we thought, look, if we want if we want this um, little party to to stay alive and grow over the next decade. We probably need to change change its name, and in many ways, it was also about providing an umbrella that would be of interest to not just sex party members, but to people from a whole range of parties. The changes to the Senate um, voting system in 2016, basically, with a death knell to a number of small progressive parties, and we were looking for a way of maybe bringing us all together, and we thought reason might be that vehicle. It's still early days for that, but I think the calibre of the candidates that we had in this election were very different to the ones from Sex Party. Can you tell me, uh, and I, I find this very fascinating, because mm. you you, you uh, put yourself up forward because you had uh, progressive policies uh, and uh, people were... Uh, you know, really quite interested, and because there's a sort of disaffected nature against uh, the parliamentary system, because people are, yeah. aren't feeling that they're being represented. Not that mm. they want it to disappear, just that it it, it want they want it to uh, be representing the people. I, I was really keen to understand what it was like for you as a person who hadn't ever been uh, working in that milieu before. What what was a big learning curve? What was it like? Look, it was a really big learning curve for me, Annie. But um, I think I I was I was fortunate because I've been working in government relations and lobbying for about twenty years, so I I did have a I did have a solid understanding of the process, and I actually had some fairly solid connections with some of the MPs or or the new MPs that used to be the staff of the old MPs, yeah. <laughs> as is the general trajectory um, in the major parties. So I did have that advantage. But, yeah, I mean, as an independent, you every portfolio is yours. So in one week, you may have to get a, your head around a health bill, 
um, an industrial relations bill, a law and order bill, and an environmental bill. So the it it was an extraordinary learning curve to to get, have to start getting this broad understanding of so many different issues. Um, but I, I loved the challenge. It was hard work, but uh, it also enabled me to talk to as many stakeholders as I could. So I I think um, while it was tough, it was incredibly rewarding. So tell me, what does your uh, perspective? How was it able to be got across in that framework? Yeah, that's uh, no, that's a good. It's an interesting question. It, sometimes your vote just isn't, uh, you know. Well, I wouldn't say it's not valuable, but but sometimes your vote will not affect any change. So, you know, if if a bill is supported by both by the the government and the opposition, uh, and that often happens in, I think some of the more terrible law and order bills that have passed our house over the last few years, and no doubt we will see more in the next in in this upcoming few years. Uh, that time you all you can do is speak loudly and and have your voice heard and have your um, opposition to the to the legislation um, understood. But in other circumstances where sometimes you, the government wants needs your vote to get their legislation across the line, that's when you can also influence and, and I think improve the legislation. So we were able to put a number of amendments up to the electoral reform legislation, for example. We put up, you know, the ride sharing legislation, we put we were able to make changes to that. You can make you can really affect change there. Plus you know, I put up four private members' bills myself um, in in that last term, and um, you know, all three out of the four were adopted by the government and and brought on. Well, and that's very impressive. And I, yeah, I, it wasn't bad. <laughs> yeah, no, that's impressive, and and especially since there's uh, private members' bills, uh, they don't have any legs unless they're influ- unless you persuade. That's right. That's right, and it is. And look, I think the other thing that I've learned very early on is never let the perfect get in the way of the good. <laughs> so if you can't get all your wins, if you can get some of your wins, then that's, you know, it's a step forward. It's, you know, you're not going backwards and you're not standing still. You may not get as much as you want, but if you can get a little bit. And, you know, we, I initiated that drug law reform inquiry and be pursuing the recommendations from that in the next couple of years. But, you know... I, I, you had to compromise, and you had to to get consensus. And if you if you try and get consensus, um, it requires compromise. But it also consensus is far more likely to be successful. And I guess you're get, you're getting better and better at it as you go along. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I think I yeah probably have a better understanding. But also, you over the years you form those relationships with people, so you you kind of you, you know them a bit better. So. You know that does that does help you in your advocacy work on how you will approach um, an issue and 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 how you will present a solution to it. And yes, knowing who's who in the zoo, yeah, um, is certainly of some benefit there. Now, at the moment, the makeup of the upper house is uh, very curious because uh, mm. every vote's going to count, isn't it? Yes. It's, um, I, I, I haven't even 
um, met all of the new uh, the new crossbenchers. So I'm looking forward to meeting them, hopefully before we get sworn in. Uh, but yes, the, the government has 18 members and they need 21 votes to pass legislation. So there's 11 crossbenchers um, representing, I think, about seven parties, maybe eight parties. Mm. So they're probably going to have to get at least two, possibly three parties to agree um, on on each piece of legislation, unless, of course, the opposition supports them. Yes, no, that's exactly right. But but you know, the, this we're in the middle of a battle now. They and the Liberals and National Party people have quite often shown themselves to be more interested in winning than consensus. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I um. Yeah, it will be interesting to see with their with their much depleted numbers in the upper house how that will how that will affect their strategies there. Have you, know, you have, have you seen any natural allies amongst the others that um, uh, have been elected? Um, not yet, but as I say, I just don't know them um, at all. I, I certainly briefly met um, Andy Medic from the Animal Justice Party, Catherine Cummings from the Darren Hinch Party, and um, uh, Rob Barton from Transport Matters. But we, I haven't got to know them. Um, certainly, Catherine Cummings and I have had a, you know, we've known each other for a number of years, and we're in furious agreement on some things and desperate disagreement on others. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that will occur, but I'm, I, I, it, it, you know, in the last, in the last one, it didn't. You know, so, you know, we had the Shooters and Fishers, we had the Australian Conservatives, and we had um, Vote One Local Jobs. And we never really voted as a block. Um, we almost always went our own ways. Uh, yeah, we supported each other when we could. But but um, it will yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I I suspect some of the more conservative ones may actually um, form alliances more than the progressive ones. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Uh, mm. The uh, other thing is that uh, the. Um, the Victorian government is, has got such a strong uh, representation in the lower house. Yes. This makes the upper house far more significant, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And look, that was the case in the last in the last one. But I think you're right. Um, when a government has so much um, uh, such a majority, they can sometimes lack some hubris, and they will. Um, they will, yeah, our way or the highway, and they will try and push through legislation that a could be a knee-jerk piece of legislation, or b it could just it could be badly thought out. Um, so the House of Review will be very important in these kind of times where governments are feeling a, a very strong right to rule um, as they see fit without having to consult with others. So. I hope that what we provide is that community voice. So, as I said earlier, I mean, I, I speak to all the stakeholders and I will continue to do that because I think their voice will not be heard as much in the Legislative Assembly um, and it, it will need 
it will need to be heard in the Legislative Council. The, made, uh, the mainstream media has made a lot of uh, mileage out of what they keep calling the uh, preference whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are your views on the way it's been happening, operating? Well, I call him the extortioner. Um, yeah look I think this he um, he made a complete mockery of our preferential voting system and I think he did it I think he broke many laws Um, the fraud we reported it to the Victorian Electoral Commission they reported it to the police and I understand it's now with the fraud and extortion squad Um, he you know he did everything he could to prevent me from being elected. Um, you know, fortunately for me, that it didn't, it wasn't, he wasn't as, success, as successful as he hoped. Uh, but I, it will mean that we need to, we will be changing the Electoral Act again. I, I just wonder if it gives us a great opportunity to actually have, ask a bigger question about what do we want democracy to look like in Victoria? You know, do we want to see more citizen engagement? Um, how how do we want our, our representatives to act? Um, and yeah, you know, I, I just wonder if it opens the door for a bigger uh, a bigger conversation. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think people who vote, including myself, want to feel mm. that we're being manipulated by a third force who we'd have yeah. no respect for. That's <laughs> couldn't agree with you more. Um, no, that's absolutely correct. And I think that his manipulation of the system this time, it was so blatant, it disregarded um, you know, so many issues. In the past, when we have worked with preferences, as every party does, you find those that are like-minded. You find yeah, those... Yeah, well, that's the that, whole idea. That is the whole idea, Annie, that's exactly. Um, I think I was very pleased to see more people voting below the line. Mm. Um, and exercising their own rights. I thought that was great. In fact, more pe- far more people voted for me below the line than they did above the line. Right. Um, which I like to think we're the, you know, the thinking parties, the thinking person's party. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think we, we, need to, we need to encourage that. But, you know, I, there is no doubt there will be a reform. Um, what, that, what that looks like is yet is unclear at, at the moment. Uh, now, before you go, because uh, I know mm-hmm. that you're extra busy now. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, are... I was cleaning up my office last week, so this week I'm, I'm pack- unpacking it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, but what are the uh, key things for the Reason Party? What are the things that are important to your party? Yeah. Look, I think certainly electoral reform will be pretty high up on the list, but um, you know, uh, ensuring that the that the progress that we made in the last four years continues. So things like the assisted dying legislation, you know, it's not bedded in yet, and I feel like it needs to be. So, you know, we need to need to keep a good eye on that. Uh, I certainly want to continue the work I did on drug law reform, um, and that would include. I believe that the time is right for Victoria to legalise and regulate cannabis. Um, I, I, I may not have the full support of my um, my parliamentary colleagues on that just yet, but I'm working on that. And I think my, I started working on greater transparency of religious organisations, particularly religious businesses, 
and I intend to work very hard on that. And I think, um, given the sort of appalling nature of their behaviour before and after the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, uh, I think this is, is long overdue. Thanks for talking to me and congratulations. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck, eh? Okay. Good on you. Cheers. Bye. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when a year after the dear baby Jesus and Allah and Yahweh and sundry lots warned us, same-sex marriage would not only lead to out-of-control sin and depravity, Sodom and Gomorrah, but also to their freedom of religion being abused, the government has righted the wrong by making it lawful for them to abuse our freedom. A week after big supremo brackets temporary scuttle them more or less son refused to allow a vote preventing their schools abusing the freedom of non-strictly heterosexual little children and this sensible Christian manoeuvre also to ban a vote on treating no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people as people. If you veto the vote, you can't lose the vote. And this sensible tactic of avoiding losing a vote by not having a vote reached a year-end crescendo in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country where we saw Brexit exit the House, no vote, but but a party vote expressing confidence in big supremo Theresa may not last, leaving us to ponder what the rest of them must be like. Mr. Speaker, everyone said the legislation would lose. Well, everyone was wrong. And in the If I Ruled the World Department, it's I do. We do rule the world. Okay, sorry, sorry. We also mentioned last week the US of the UN of the US of the world proceeding to extradite from Canada an evil Chinese woman for the heinous crime of disobeying US of orders about doing business with evil Iran. Uh, So the U.S. of is a supporter of world law determined by the U.S. of. Certainly, the World State Department Chuck Slaughter IV concurred. We prosecute those evil countries like evil China and evil Iran who don't respect the law of the sea, for instance, believe they have a right to sail in the seas off their coastlines. Very, very threatening aggression, a concern to all who love freedom. We send evil war criminals like black warlords and the bad guys to the world court. But but, but the U.S. Ob refuses to join either of those uh, bodies. You, you've made it illegal to charge U.S. of the world citizens uh, or, or the U.S. of itself with breaking those laws. That is because we are opposed to frivolous charges, false charges, laid by the bad guys against those protecting the world from evil. The world order would collapse if the good guys could be prosecuted for being the good guys. And you have withdrawn from the Paris Agreement, but at the follow-up in Poland, you vetoed a motion to accept the impact of climate change and the need for urgent international action. It is our responsibility as the U.S. of the world to prevent this disaster. This disaster to the world economy, to the good guys who generate wealth and jobs. 
we must not surrender to the warmest who perpetrate this scaremonger campaign, this unproven warmest myth. And surely you're aware your little acolyte bootlicking country supported us to the hilt, as, let me say with gratitude, you always do. See, this international panel on climate change report claimed all the signatories must increase their targets if the planet is to survive, based on nothing stronger than scientific evidence, prompting true blue Aussies fossil minister Melissa will pay the price to declare there is no way true blue Aussie will increase its target. Smart move, given the government assures us we will reach the inadequate target without doing anything, or conversely, doing everything we're doing now, which is working so well we now lead the world in increasing our emissions. But the government must know this will ensure we do reach our target. Uh, based on real evidence like non-science, or conversely again, scientific sequestration, in other words, heads in the sand. Must question Donald Trample the pause business acumen, as it now turns out he employed a lawyer for 12 years whom he considered hopeless. The lawyer, Michael going to jail, now says he's truly remorseful and was only carrying out Donald's orders in the matters for which he is going to jail. Uh, what gives you the most remorse, Michael? A jail. That US of extradition bid brings us to the name change at the True Blue Aussie Federal, uh, sorry, uh, police, now known as the FES, FES, the Federal Execution Squad, fighting against weak-kneed, gutless, anti-capital punishment laws here by sending True Blue Aussies off to, the, to be executed in good, gutsy jurisdictions who believe in a bit of capital punishment, judicial or summary, like Indonesia and other people's business and Bahrain at the same time challenging the rights of gutless taking advantage of our goodness refugees from fleeing here just because of the odd death threat. In the deaf to evil workers ripping off their caring employers department, we mentioned the other week the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kerry Odawire's Odawire Workers So Evil, has headed to court to support a poor caring employer attempting to overturn a ridiculous decision that workers who work full-time should be considered, this is ludicrous, considered full-time workers and therefore entitled to entitlements like sick leave, holidays, superannuation, that sort of thing, when the caring employers knows they are casual, okay, casual full-time, but casual, and therefore receiving those entitlements, as Kelly points out, is double-dipping because the fabulous wages they receive allow for the loss of those entitlements. This is potentially crippling for many small businesses, Kelly's own words, listener, and this will prevent these small businesses, the very lifeblood of our economy, from being able to employ all those casual workers full-time, workers whom they so care about. As our old mate, Trubler was the Industry Profits Council Supremo Innes Welloff complained, this was blatant unfairness causing a great deal of concern amongst employers of all sizes. Uh, concern in us. Absolutely. It means we may have to pay them. Good God, it is serious. But sensibly, Kelly has a plan to stop all this double dipping in case the court again makes a mistake. Legislate to stop full-time workers being declared full-time workers. 
and we can be sure she won't be delaying the boat on that one, proving once again how lucky we are to have the protection of the separation of powers, an independent judiciary and an independent legislature. And let's ignore the usual evil union complaints that very, very, very few casual full-time workers or casual workers of any sort get the loadings in the first place, as if a caring employer would. No, no. Typical evil anti-union class warfare, or evil union class warfare. And it's pretty obvious the evil unions must have played a part in creating this headline in Monday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Rio Head says the public does not trust miners. Good God, where did that come from? Well, personally, I do trust them to do what they do. But if people don't trust the great resource corporates, then it must be the work of the evil unions spreading nonsense like they're ruthless, greedy, destroy the environment, tearing up public resources. When the man from Rio says they do all they can to protect the environment which is just as well. Imagine if they didn't. Although the all they can take it literally would surely mean don't touch it in the first place. As the worst pack bank annual meeting created a true blue Aussie record for the extent of shareholder rejection of the board's remuneration recommendations, almost 65%, chair and highly respected practitioner of the greatest little economic order of them all, Lindsay Max Propertstead, cautioned that many problems uncovered by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission related to other banks. Only about 25% is ours. He was quite rightly aggrieved. And, Lindsay warned, the final commission report would not reflect overall bank culture because its terms of reference were limited. They only looked at misconduct. Uh, yes, Lindsay, that's, uh, that's right. That's why it was set up with your lot kicking and screaming in the first place. And, and I feel, I'm sure we feel, listener, it may well reflect overall bank culture. Emails released this week, presumably leaked, reflect a culture in the caring business class party making us thankful the lobster with the mobster didn't win the election because we would have ended up with a commie government. The lobster with looked like anything but a dangerous revolutionary, but it just shows how they can fool us. Because Bev MacArthur, real name, because we've never heard of her, apparently a party apparachic and now new upper house caring business class MP, attacked efforts to put more women into parliament after making sure she got there herself. This focus on gender is a Marxist construct, she gasped. Obviously, the caring business class is pulsating with red rager women, with evil commies sitting around their, their tables, surrounded by portraits of Marx, Lenin, Che Guevara, passing motions that the destruction of capitalism requires more caring business class party women in parliament. It's terrifying, meaning to, to stem the commie tide, the commie plot, Bev should resign immediately. But if that's bad enough, it gets worse. The lobster with policy to provide free school books was, she said, blatant pork barrelling and socialism to boot. Exactly. If families can't afford school books, they don't deserve them. Thank goodness we gave socialism the boot, because with the uh, pejorative Dan and his team we did elect, there's no risk of it whatever. Must say, it'd be great to sit down with Bev, who's obviously a deep thinker, and have a good chat about our shared values. Finally, speak.
speaking of where commies used to be, a community activist got fined in St. Petersburg, the charge, violating the rules of public meetings for setting rats loose in the local parliament. If they're anything like our lot, how would you tell the rats from the rats? <laughs> well, that's it for this nonsense for the year, listener. I'm out of here till February as we celebrate the birth of the dear baby Jesus and his followers' freedoms. Enjoy and take care. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. That's exactly right. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. G'day, Humphrey. How are you? G'day, Annie. Yes, I've read your piece and uh, you've given us a sobering Christmas present. That's all I can say. Ah, well, well, before we get to the sobering bit, can I make a suggestion as to one of the movies, a movie everyone should get to. Let me put it, I'm not going to say any more than this. If you never see another movie, Hmm. get to see Roma. Ah. It is breathtaking in every way. We've, We've been twice and we're going again tonight. So mm. I can't say more than that. But it won't be on until after Christmas. I mean, you really perhaps need to go till before Wednesday because it will come off with all the blockbusters coming in on Boxing Day. Yep. So, okay. But it is fabulous. Okay, back to the hard subject. As you say, it is Christmas, our uh, holiday times, and... And you don't believe in Santa Claus. We don't, well... <laughs> <laughs> Well, some people get Santa Claus, of course. This is is what it's about. Some people get their stockings full and other people have their stockings stolen from them. Uh, And we're going to look at the bond market. Okay. Um, I've been putting this off. I've been meaning to do this for ages, and I think, oh, God, it's too hard for me. So I thought I must, get, I must get down and do it in a way in which I hope I can make some sense to people over the radio at this hour of the morning. Now, I don't want to go to the history of the bond market, um, except to say that capitalism depends on a regime of credit, and bonds are lending to corporations and to governments. So they're an essential part of how the system has operated for, well, 300 years, really. So what's Uh, the difference between a bond and a share? Well, a bond is a loan. Um, If you buy a bond in a corporation, you uh, buy it for a set period of time, say 10 years, and at the end of that time, you get all your money back. And in the meantime, they pay you a set rate of interest, perhaps 7%, perhaps 5%, depending on, you know, what, the state of interest is at the time. Now, of course, with general interest at about you know zero percent, uh, any kind of um, a bond interest can be um, can be appealing to. And we're not talking about individual investors here. I mean, these are the big corporates and the institutions, the trust funds. These are the people who are sloshing the billions around within this. Whereas a share, it means what it says. You buy a share in a company and you get a slice of it. And at the and end the of risk. the year, you get a slice of the profit, if there's any. And if there isn't any, then you don't get anything. But with a bond, even if there's no profit, they are supposed to pay you the interest that they promised you. So it's, it's like a bill, it's, it's a business expense, like having to pay the power bill, for example. Um, so that's the fundamental difference. Um, there are different kinds of bonds. In fact, there are now so many bonds you can't keep track of them because of the because of the screen jockeys and all the derivatives and all the tricks and scams they get up to. They keep on inventing new kinds of bonds in this, that, and the other thing. As we saw with the subprime uh, crisis, when they packaged all these subprime mortgages up 
uh, and sold them off as bonds around the world. Um, and the, you know, they were supposed to be very secure, as you will remember. Um, but, Goodness me. But the, the other thing to remember about this is that while the ABC gives us the share market report probably six or seven times a day, um, yeah, that when, when did you hear them talk about what's happening on the bond market? Or I don't even think mention? I've ever heard of it. No. Uh, and yet, the bond market is more than twice as big as the share market. The bond market annually turns over $100 trillion. Wow. The share market, a mere $40 trillion. <laughs> So it's clearly much, much more important, but there is a real link between them. And so um, it's the bedrock of capitalism, really? It really is, yeah. Um, and, but, of course, like any other part of the capitalist system, which is so unstable, indeed, I mean, that's its strength in a way, that its instability means that it's able to keep um, expanding and doing all these Morphing. things. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, if, if something goes wrong in the bond market, and we'll get to a good example of this, you know, in a couple of minutes, um, with the long-term capital manage, uh, management people um, 20 years ago, uh, if something goes wrong in the bond market, it can bring the share market down. Uh, so you can have a general crash in the system, just as much from the bond market as you can from the share market. People keep, oh, the share market's having you know, a bad hair day, as Alan Kohler keeps telling us, um, or it's, you know, it, it's feeling quite well today, as if it was a person out there doing this. But the bond market is much more important, and yet um, hardly ever discussed. As I said, you know, to our shame, we haven't discussed it before either, but we're trying to make up for it now. <clears throat> So, um, the bond is, as I said, a kind of IOU. You lend the corporation or the government, gives a bit of money, and you're supposed to get it back again. Um, now, of course, a shareholder, <coughs> if things go wrong, <coughs> excuse me, if things go wrong, the shareholder can lose the lot. Yeah, that's like gambling. Yeah. It can happen on the bond market, too, as we'll see in a little while. Um, but um, So, if you're risk-averse... Uh, like I am, uh, not that I've got any money to invest, so this doesn't really arise, but if you're as risk-averse as I am, a bond looks like a safer bet than putting than, than buying a share in, in most of the corporations. <clears throat> but, of course, security will come at a cost. Yeah, uh, across the last 250 years, really, on average, the rate of return on a bond is lower than the rate of return on, on most of the shares. Uh, and that's because the promise is you will get your money regularly and you will get it back at the end. Uh, now, of course, for these things to be averaged, some of them have to be um, paying higher rates and some of them lower rates. And the ones that in the bond market, the ones that pay the higher rates are the ones that are you know, most, you know, well, more likely that something will go wrong with them. So, uh, so what what happened when there was the down, when there are downturns uh, when it comes to bonds? Well, the most recent one, which I'm sure everyone will remember, is the long term capital management one in ninety seven ninety eight. Um, this almost wrecked the entire system. Now, these two founders, these very bright economists, well, econometricians are really mathematicians, they'd been given fake Nobel Prizes for concocting algorithms to smarten up the trade in the derivatives. 
uh, came up with this formula and people said, oh, isn't that wonderful? We'll give you one of our fake Nobel Prizes. Well, then came the Asian crisis. And these couple masters of the universe decided that as a result, the US bonds were overpriced. And they hedged, i.e. they made a bet that they would go down. Well, instead of the treasuries going down, Russia defaulted. And that led to a panic sell-off of shares everywhere. When you say defaulted, they defaulted on their bonds. On their bonds. Yeah, they just said, we're not going to pay anymore. (laughs) Oh, well, that's that's a very common activity, (laughs) Uh, as we'll see when we get to the Argentine in a minute. Um, But so they defaulted. This created, as you know, as you remember 20 years ago, that sort of panic of people standing outside in the snow wanting to get mm, their money out of banks, right. and, and it flooded around the world. Now, this meant that the people who took their money out of shares around the world, because they were falling, thought, oh, we've got to put them somewhere safe, and the safest thing in the world was to buy a bond in, in the US government. So instead of the US government bonds going down, as these people these um, right people, they went up. And this meant, of course, that the the capital management people had invested all their, well, not their money, but all the people who'd given them money. And to get in, you had to give them $10 million. That was the entry fee. (laughs) Nothing less than $10 million would get you in the door. That's actually a small amount of money, really, for these people. Um, But, you know, that that was what you had to start with. Well, they were facing bankruptcy. And the fear was, as always in these cases, they'd take the whole system down. Mm. So the Fed Reserve rallied around and made 15 of the other banks put up $3.5 billion to bail out long-term capital management. Did that prune some of the richest people out of the system? No. No. No, because they were saved. Yeah. You know, I mean, these people, I mean, it's the small investors, the people who would have lost money are people, well, like the poor bloody Russians who lost their money. Yeah. Um, you know, the ordinary Russians, their savings were just wiped out. But uh, any, anybody in, in, you know, in Western Europe who perhaps had some savings, small business people and things, and put it into something with a, you know, as a bit of security for their old age, they were likely to have lost out because they don't have these huge trust funds looking after their wealth for them. You know, I mean, these trust funds, I have to say this now, we said about 10 million being a small amount of entry. I mean, the wealth management people at the Union, at the Union Bank of Switzerland, at UBS, I mean, it's almost, if you don't, if you've got less than a billion dollars, they don't want to see you. You've got to be a Saudi prince, you know, for them to say, well, we will manage your wealth for you. Um, so, you know, it's a world which, you know, it's incomprehensible to us, but it's, it's how that world works for them. Now, so that's what happened in, two, in 97, 98. Um, the global economy was headed for a meltdown, as it was with um, Lehman Brothers 20 years later. Um, and the same thing happened. The government stepped in to, uh, to rescue the bank rather than allow it to pull down the entire system. So, so it's now becoming a pattern? Well, it's always been a pattern. You know, I mean, if you, no matter how far you go back, um, I mean, in the, in the well, I mean, I tell I wasn't going to do history, but in the 1820s, all the new Latin American countries, you know, that had escaped from the Portuguese or the, from the, the Spaniards. The South Sea bubble. This is the South Sea well, bubble. Well, that's 1720. Oh. That's 100 years before. 
sorry. No, no. Mm. no. So all these countries they set up, and they went they went to England and other places and said, we would like to borrow some money. We'd like to get, you know, we haven't got any debts. We'll run them up. So they ran them up. In one wonderful case, there's a... Um, be asked, have you ever heard a Latin American country called Pias, P-O-Y-A-I-S? No. It didn't exist. But people, oh, right. people sold I shares in it. Yes, I've heard it. about this, yes. Yeah. I mean, people were so you know, mad to buy shares in these Latin you know, American bonds or buy bonds in these Latin American countries. They, if somebody invented a country and said, we'll sell you shares in that too, they had no idea where these places were on the map. Did the people that imagine, uh, created that, did they ever go to jail? Or? No. No, right. No, no. I mean, That's very, a pattern too. There are very lax commercial laws in those days. Mm. Um, you know, the, the whole commercial law system, I mean, it's, get, it's being built up during the 18th century. Uh, but, you know, the, really a lot of it doesn't come... The one thing that wasn't there, I have to say, and this was a big argument in the ruling class, what we now have with corporations is something called... Well, there used to be unlimited liability. That's right. So if you bought a share and the company went bankrupt, you, mm. even though you only own one share, you were responsible for the entire debt of the company. Mm. Then in the 1850s, the capitalists said, oh, we can't, yeah, we can never expand if we keep on doing this. Therefore, we have to stop that. And therefore, you are only responsible for the percentage of the share that you own in the company. That was an enormous change, and places like the Times and the House and the you know and the the Chief Justice were saying this will encourage speculation. Um, funny, funny enough, it did. What they were worried about was, uh, and this changed at this time as well. The bit I didn't mention about the bond market is that the British bond market was there to fund the Royal Navy, uh, yes. and that kept Britain on top. And it had done, really it started in 1694 when they went to war with France the first, well, not the first time, but again. And that kept them going. It kept them going through the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so that the fear was that if there was this other source of investment, the money wouldn't be there for the Royal Navy. And if it wasn't there for the Royal Navy, Britain would go down and the whole of the commercial system would go down. So they're actually protecting the investors, but by an indirect way. So there's always been this intimacy between war-making. I mean, when I was a kid, there were signs in our street, this is a war-bond-saving street. Mm. Because every householder was encouraged to put a bit, take it out of your savings bank account and give it to the government to, um, to fight the war. Yeah, that's now, exactly right. Yeah, anyway, we, we need to well, keep moving no, on. Yeah, tell us about Argentina. Well, the Argentine. Well, this is why, you know, as you know, Two weeks ago, the, the G20, the biggest 20 economies in the world, were having their get-together, and this time it was... The, you know, each of the countries take it in turn, and this time it was the Argentine. So there they were in Buenos Aires. Now, this is truly fascinating, because we did mention this thing, that, that the Argentinian government um, in 2017 borrowed... Uh, won $17.75 billion out of a bond issue. And these bonds won't mature until 2117. That's 100 years' time. 
Yeah, so, so people are considering, they think they're going to be a dynasty, so they can well, collect on this. Well, you know, I mean, you can... But who would you lend money to in a government or a corporation and expect it to be there in 100 years from now? I know. I mean, it's... You know, but, this, I mean, that's only half the, half the fun and games. Mm-hmm. Within two days, that was oversubscribed. Yeah, why? More people wanted to get into this than there were bonds on sale. Why, though? Because there's nowhere else to put your money. Uh. We'll get, you know, that's the big problem at the moment. I mean, the excess capacity in the production system has given rise now to excess capacity in the amount of capital that is just sloshing around with nowhere to go um, that will produce anything like what they would consider to be a reasonable return on their investment. And in, in the Australian context, this is related to the... Uh uh, property market. It, isn't it is, and we'll. I mean, I'll just finish off a bit oh, yeah. because Sorry. the Argentinian thing is even even better than we've got to so far. Now, here, a hundred years in a hundred years from now, you'll get your money back, but it's oversubscribed. But the other thing to remember is that the Argentinian government has defaulted on its international debts six times in the last hundred years. Wow. That's not a state secret. No. Everyone knows that. Indeed, the last time they defaulted was 2014. And yet three years later, all this money is pouring into them. Um, so so this, is a, uh, this is a business plan, but also it's not just the Argentinians that are involved in this, is it? Sorry, like, is it? It's not just the Argentinian. I mean, yes, it's been... Oh, everybody's. Well, I mean, yeah. the other example... I mean, if you, if, you, if you missed out on the opportunity to give the Argentinians money, don't despair. There's plenty of others out there who want it. Um, my other favourite is that um, the Iraqis last year wanted to borrow only one, only one billion. Hmm. They were swamped with offers of six... Now, I have to say, if they came around with a hat and said, look, there are all these starving children in Iraq, would you give me some money for them? That's one thing. But would you think, with you know, everything we know that's going on in Iraq and has been going on, that you would lend them money and expect to get 7% interest out of them and get your money back in 10 years' time? I mean, it's just... I mean, there is a kind... Well, there is the a whole bad, thing bad just world is gobsmacking. There. It's just got out of control because there's nothing else to do with it. There's these trillions slashing around, sloshing around, and you can't invest it in, in productive property because there's, in main areas there's overcapacity in producing you know, almost anything you want. Um, and, you know, and the interest rates that governments are offering in the West are now effectively zero, except in the US where they're about 2%. Um, and... You know, so all of this money, all of this money is sloshing around out of there. And, of course, the, the Argentinians, you know, one year they're borrowing money um, from the public market, and then the next year they've gone bankrupt and they have to get a loan of $59 billion from the IMF. So, you know, that's... You know, that's so does that mean that, effectively, these countries are owned by the 1%? Well... If the 1% can get them to pay back, mm. uh, and that's not always easy, of course. Uh, they normally some, come to some kind of, of real accommodation. 
so they pay off a bit. And the thing the IMF was imposing, like they do everywhere on the Argentinians, is that welfare services have to be slashed. Um, you know, private, you know, government assets sold off to pay pay them back. Mm. Um, I mean, those standard procedures uh, are what's going to fall on the Argentinians again. Um, how much the, the Argentinian people will put up with this, of course, is another matter again. Um, but the um, that's you know that's you know, what's happening out there now in this bit of the bond uh, the financial system about which we almost never hear anything. So as you say, the property market now. We're told all the time here that, oh, it's, you know, it's individual investors or it's the Chinese investor coming and buying a house or something. Well, certainly that's part of what's happening. But what we've got to look at is the global picture. Because globally, these trust funds, these big investment funds, the wealth managers... Well, like the, uh, what is it, the uh, teachers... Um well, in Canadian, Canada. yeah, the Canadian yeah, well, Teachers yeah. uh, Pension Fund. Yeah, well, that's kind of small bickies. Oh right. You know, I mean, they're, they're just you know, but they are what they are. They're the Canadian Teachers Fund. I know. I mean, look, I mean, they're, they're not sitting on you know, on 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 hundreds of billions of dollars to slosh around. They've got most of their money already somewhere else and things. You know, but what happens is that these people, like the Union Bank of Switzerland or BlackRock or these people. They look for a class of assets. I mean, I mean, for example, they might buy gold. You know, they will have some stacked away in gold, even when gold price is low, because who knows, it might go up. So you might keep 5% slashed away in gold. You'll have certain asset classes that will be like shares. So you'll have a percentage in shares. It's a bit like, you know, what they tell you to do with your own superannuation. Somebody once got a, a Nobel, well, you know, a fake Nobel Prize for proving you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, that's perfectly that's true. And anyone with anyone any sense would, any, would realise Anybody that with any proverb knowledge would know that. Yeah. So... <laughs> So what these people do, they look for classes of assets and and investing in real property, in land or in office blocks and now in apartment blocks and housing estates. Um, this is this shopping centres, big shopping centres. All of these things are packaged up together, and they are considered to be a, a, yet another asset class. Yep. And we're not so... Yes, there are individuals buying in and they're using negative gearing in Australia and all those things to help them. But that is small bickies compared to what's going on on the global scale. And why is it happening? Well, it's happening because if you want to buy a share, 10 years ago, if you spent $1... If you spent $17, you'd expect to get $1 back in your interest payments, you know, in your share dividend. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, if you buy a share now... To get one dollar, you've got to spend thirty. So it costs you thirteen dollars more in outlay to get the one dollar back. Mm. So this is not a very attractive investment for lots of people who want to, who've got money that they've got to put somewhere that they haven't got it already, and they're looking for new assets. That's why they give the money to the Argentinians. It's why they give it to the Iraqis, um, and it's why this boom around the world in Vancouver, in Sydney, in London. Uh, this is part of this global search for a new asset class. Uh, now, the people who invest in this, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't know where any of these things were. They're not interested. 
It really, uh, we're coming to the end, but yeah. I'll tell you, it really does uh, highlight the complete difference between uh, normal people's lives and uh, oh. this threatening cloud of financial um, yeah. uh, dominance, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And what, what the, the, you know, for the property market, the OECD's warned that it can come down, and of course it can, but one of the things that's likely to bring it down is if the wealth managers decide there's a safer hole to hide in, they pull the money out of this and put it into that. Yeah. Uh, and they are transferring funds around. I mean, they're not, they're not actually trying to move the building from one city no, to no, another. No, 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 no. It means nothing. It's all yeah. hypothetical. It's all up to the... And, of course, you know, we then on the cheery thought of what's going to happen in the United Kingdom. Yeah. You know, I mean, there the pound is going through the floor. The, the Bank of England is buying corporate bonds to keep the economy going. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's the kind of things that, that you used to think only went on in places like the Argentine, which kept on defaulting. But um, Well, I told it, everybody that you were going to give them a Christmas present. Yeah, well, they, they've got <laughs> That's it. something the to think about. The real Christmas present is go and enjoy Roma. Go to the movie. <laughs> it is, you know, it, I don't ever expect to see a better film. <laughs> so there's a cheery thought for you to go out on. Yeah. And everybody have a, a good, hard think about how the capitalist system really functions, not how the ABC tells them it does. Bye-bye, mate. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, and that is the end of the program. And I said, as I said, that's a, a nasty thought leading into Christmas, the, the uh, pound falling through the floor. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, we really are right at the end. And uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Have a happy uh, holiday season. We're going to go out with Sweet Struggle. <laughs>
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.